Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're talking about privatized banking basics and what kind of policy do you use? We're going to show you why there's only one type of policy and how to make sure that you don't buy one that underperforms. We're also going to point out the adjustments that you need to make to typical whole life insurance that guarantee you're not going to have to wait forever to build up cash value. We're your hosts, Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. Good morning. Welcome, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Um, This is going to be a very interesting and I hope enlightening conversations for our listeners. Absolutely. So let's set the stage. You have cash to begin investing and you want to maximize that long-term growth as well as having a place to store your capital in a life insurance contract first. And the reason you want to do this is because you want to utilize privatized banking because that allows you to control your capital, maximize your access to that money, maximize your safety and your growth as well, And you have the ability to continue earning uninterrupted compound interest, even while you're using your money. And you also have that flexibility to pay back loans at a pace that works for you. Now, if you missed our last episode on privatized banking, this is where we fleshed out all of the pieces that I just brought together for you. So you might want to go back and check that episode if you've missed that. But now you might be ready to look for a life insurance policy that's going to help you use the privatized banking concept. And when you're buying life insurance, it can almost feel like you're standing at Baskin Robbins and trying to decide over the 31 flavors of ice cream. I mean, it's like all of these choices are just in your face and you're saying, well, how do I figure out what I'm going to use? So we're going to answer in this podcast today, what do I need? What are the essentials to make sure that this policy performs best? Can I use any cash value life insurance product? What makes it specially designed? How is it different than typical whole life? And how do I ensure that it's not going to take me 20 years to build up cash value, that I can use my cash quickly to be able to invest in those opportunities? So today we're going to answer all of those questions, and you're going to find out the three major types of life insurance and why only one of them works for privatized banking. You're going to discover the only kind of life insurance company that you want to work with. You're going to get a map to be able to label all of the crucial elements of a privatized banking policy and uncover the exact funding ratios that ensure you have the way to maximize your early cash value and have the best long-term growth rate. We're going to help you recognize the high-performance custom modifications to traditional whole life insurance that you're really wanting in your policy design so that you can optimize the capacity to use that policy. So in today's conversation, you're going to gain an awareness, almost like virtual reality, where you're going to be able to have a map to overlay on any policy and make sure that it has all the key features to make sure that it measures up. You're going to go from overwhelmed with all the options to being crystal clear on exactly what you want. And you're going to be able to make decisions quickly and easily, knowing how to focus on what's most important and leave all the other details on the sidelines. So I want to point out one more thing before we dig in. So where does privatized banking fit in the cash flow system? Well, we talked about how it's part of your protection element. This helps you protect your cash flow. And we also talked about in the last episode that it's almost like the peanut butter to your cash flow sandwich. It's right in the middle. So in the first level, in level one, we're 
keeping more of the money that you make. And in the second level, you want to protect that money. And then thirdly, you're making more. So privatized banking allows you to do all of that more efficiently, being more efficient with keeping more of the money you already make. And it helps you increase the cash flow that you make from your investments. Doing this accelerates your time and money freedom. Now let's dig in. I want to start off by saying that life insurance is a powerful product and it can serve you in infinite ways all at the same time. But there's not many people that are aware of how to design a life insurance policy in a way that fulfills its potential. So Bruce, let's talk about the three major types of life insurance so that we can really help our audience understand how only one works for privatized banking. Sure. You know, whenever there's any kind of product developed, whether it's a service or an actual physical product, um, the reason it is developed is to solve a problem uh, for a at least a significant part of a population. Because if it mm-hmm. doesn't solve a problem for a significant part of a population, then there would be no reason to develop it because there would be no profitability uh, in, doing the, in doing it. And, and then thus it wouldn't be done. Um, right. Economists call that the invisible hand of the of the uh, economy. In other words, people develop products all the time because they believe it's going to help solve a problem. Mm-hmm. But then when they actually put it out into the um, into the universe to help solve this problem, either a they they misinterpret it, they mispriced it. Uh, or they're or, solving the wrong problem. Or they're solving the wrong, or the problem now is being solved in a more efficient way by somebody mm-hmm. else. So when well, it's we really produce, supply and demand, I mean, you can't create something that there's no demand for. In its simplest, in its simplest uh, way to say it's supply and demand, but I don't really think everybody has a great uh, an understanding of what supply and demand actually means. And it really, it really is. Hey, is there a problem that a significant amount of people have that can be mm-hmm. solved in an efficient way and somebody can make a profit off of it, thus wanting to actually solve that particular problem. And then they have to make they have to make actually tweaks to this to continue to um, uh, have enough profitability to continue to offer this. Now I said I say all of that mm-hmm. because that's all related in the history history on how insurance was actually developed. So here are the three types of, of history, uh, or excuse me, of, of uh, three types of insurance. First one is the simplest. It's, it's called term insurance. Now, term insurance originally was one-year renewable term. So the actuaries would figure out for whatever age you were, like, like let's say a 25-year-old, to protect that 25-year-old for one year, we would have to have a premium uh, like this because they don't know who's going to die. Twenty, how many? Uh, which twenty-five-year-olds going to die in that one year? But they know how many twenty-five-year-olds are going to die in that one year. And then, mm-hmm. because it was one-year renewable, it would it would continue to escalate because there's there's going to be more twenty-six-year-olds that die than twenty-five-year-olds, and then twenty-seven, twenty-eight, and so on and so forth. I think I think the listeners get the idea, right? But then the industry came up with the idea that, well, by the time people are 40 and 50, because they're paying a lot less uh, as a 26-year-old than they would as a 40-year-old, 
because the cost is ex- escalating, why don't we just smooth these payments out? Now, I'll give you an example. So like for a $100,000 policy as a 26-year-old for a one-year renewable term, you might be able to get that for a 10-year term for like $6 a month. Mm-hmm. But then as a 40-year-old, it might be $80 a month. So they just figured out they would sell more policies if they took and spread that the difference between 40 and $6 and say, well, if you just pay us $12 over the next 10 years, then that'll be more palatable and more people will actually purchase that. And there's a lot more, there's a lot less administrative costs for that and so on and so forth. So that's how, that's the history. Now, term insurance actually solves the problem for people that would like to protect their income. Um, and but they they have only a little bit of money, maybe early in their career, or because of whatever uh, extenuating circumstances, they don't have enough money to buy a permanent policy. So it, it there is a reason to have term insurance. You and I often talk to people about uh, reaching their human life value, and that's one way to, of doing it by stacking term insurance on top of a permanent insurance. So, I'll point out too with term, I think some of the main things that make it stand apart is that as you just clarified the difference, there's term or there's permanent term lasts for a set length of time. And once that policy is complete, it's no longer enforced. So if you have lived throughout the full term of the term life insurance policy, you did not get any return out of it. It did not pay out a death benefit. And it also did not build cash value or any type of equity during the time that you had the policy. So that's just some clarifying information that helps to understand what is term. I'm putting the money in as premium. I get a death benefit paid out to my heirs if I pass away during the term of the policy. If I pass away after the term is over and my policy is no longer in force, I get nothing. Correct. And and typically those are either 10-year 20 year or 30 year, although there are some companies that do uh, 15 and 25. Very few companies ever do anything less than 10 year uh, for term purposes. Now, to just clarify what you said, um, you there is no cash value uh, buildup, but most contracts are written so that you can continue the term if you want, it's just that the the the, the cost for the term has escalated immensely. Yes. So, example, um, one of our recent clients from the Money Advantage, um, he actually has a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar term that for the past twenty years he's pa- he's paying six hundred and six dollars a year on, and he's now fifty nine. It will be. It will go away in three or four years. I don't remember, but I do remember the amount. If he wants to continue, the the, the next year it will be twenty two thousand dollars a year. So it goes mm-hmm. from six hundred and six dollars a year to twenty two thousand, and then the next year it went to like twenty three thousand. The next year it went to twenty five, and then by the time he was like seventy nine years old. He was paying somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty thousand dollars a year for the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar policy. So there are some that yes. definitely go away, and then but there are some that are contractually written that it just simply turns into a one year renewable term after that. 
of course we get a yeah. huge spike in in premiums. In rate. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for sharing that because I think sometimes that's something that's easily overlooked. Oh, I'll just renew the term policy without realizing the significant cost burden that you might be having to incur in order to keep it. Right. And, the, and the Rachel, to clarify that, you can um, reduce that cost burden, like him as a 59-year-old. It's just that he would have to go through an underwriting requirement again um, and apply for another term, whether it be 10 years, 15, 20. As a 59-year-old, he is not going to get – probably 20-year term is going to be the – the longest he's going to get. A, I don't know if any company is going to give him a 30-year term at that time period because he'll be 89. He'll be past life expectancy and mm-hmm. uh, they won't give it to him. So he won't even be able to get it. So thank you for um, just bringing all those pieces to light about term life insurance. So let's continue on. We have the three types of insurance and we want to be able to highlight how only one of them is working for privatized banking. So um, first off, we know that with privatized banking, we need to be able to have access to cash value. So term life insurance as it's as a standalone product will not work for privatized banking. If you converted it at some point over to a permanent product that builds cash value, at that point, you might be able to use that new policy, but term insurance is not going to work for privatized banking. You want to go into the next one, Bruce? Yeah. And the next one uh, I typically talk about is universal life. And I'll give a little history on this too. So universal life was developed as an alternative to build cash value uh, because people were taking money out of whole life, which will hit next and going into the stock market. And so um, they wanted a a product that might be able to uh, be a little, uh, and I don't want to use the word cheaper, but a little bit um, uh, actually for people to be able to fund um, at a, a lower rate because some of the funding was going to be, premium and some of the funding was going to be from the interest that they were actually earning on the money. And so that way you didn't have to put as much premium in because your premium uh, part, the overfunding part was actually earning interest. And that overfunding part would actually pay along with your normal premium would pay for the premium. Unfortunately, with universal life, it is interest rate sensitive And so they have to make an assumption of what interest rates are going to be out into the future. And in in some cases, 30 years, well, we've all seen what interest rates have done in the last 30 years. So then you can keep the policy going, but what ends up happening is you, in order to maintain the proper ratios of cash value to to the actual life insurance so that it doesn't what they call lapse. In other words, you don't have if you're putting in your premium, that wasn't enough to pay for the life insurance aspect, the death benefit, because they were counting on you making interest on your cash portion of your of your premium. So that mm-hmm. it, when interest rates are going downward, that didn't happen. And it has happened in the last 30 years. And a lot of these, um, they had to go back to the particular person and say, we did not anticipate interest rates falling like this. So we're going to need more cash to keep this going. Well, a lot of people were surprised at this. A lot of people could not keep up with the increased premium cost. And there's some really sad stories about how, you know, 88, 90 year olds who thought they were going to leave a legacy are now having to come up with tens of thousands of dollars just to make a premium payment in one year. Now, 
that's the that's the traditional universal life. Then the in the eighties and uh, early nineties, when the stock market started to take off after Black Monday, um, the insurance industry people were taking money out of both universal life policies and whole life policies, <clears throat> and instead of in, putting money and storing cash there, they were going into the stock market. So this is this is something that I believe this is a, this is my personal opinion on this. Uh, although I it's shared with a lot of people that the insurance industry kind of messed up here because they decided to uh, get into the to the investment world. So they allow you now to have a universal life called a variable universal life, where your cash value was not in an index. I'm sorry, in a interest driven. Um, product, but it was actually now in the stock market. And it did really well. And people got a false sense of security again. And they did very, very well. And then all of a sudden, here comes 2001. And we have the uh, dot com crash. And once again, insurance agents had to go back to their clients and say, hey, I'm sorry, but uh, we thought the stock market was going to go up to help pay for your premium. But it's now crashed. So um, we we need some more money in here. And and also you have increased costs for variable universal life because you do have investment costs along the way also. So that product, though some people still really like to use it because we are not 100% sure that the cash value is going to remain steady, it's not good for, and it's, well, not even, it's not good, it's inappropriate for a privatized banking uh, product. And then the- Right. And I would I would say on that, that when you look at insurance as a pure insurance product or investments as a pure investment product, it's easier to separate and figure out what you're doing with your money because investments do involve risk. And when you bring the risk over into the insurance environment, there's a lot of muddying of the waters. And again, just as you said, there's not the guarantees that we need to be able to have this solid foundation for privatized banking within the universal life products. Right. And the last time a universal life is, is a response to people losing a lot of money in variable uh, universal life. Once again, this is the, the, this is the, the invisible hand of the economy. So the uh, life insurance industry started having people uh, either just give up their variable universal life or convert it into something else. And so they said, well, why are you doing this? Well, we're doing it because we were losing money in here. So they developed an index universal life. And the idea of an index universal life is there's a floor. In other words, uh, your money is protected from going downward, but you are capped on the upside of the particular policy. And you are not invested in individual stocks or mutual funds. You're actually invested in the entire index, whether it be the Russell 2000, whether it be um, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, or some companies actually develop their own index, Goldman Sachs, which is a bundle of, of, actually, of actual stocks. So this seems more appealing to people because they say, well, I still want to try to, try to get market, um, market returns, but, and, but I'm willing to give, give up some of that market return so that I protect my downside. And this, although this is better than um, variable universal life, there is still an increased cost in these 
because they have to buy options and hedge against um, the loss because if, if you're not going to lose, the insurance company is not going to lose also. So they have to do some very complicated investing strategies. So there's an increased cost in this. And then, and then there's also the problem that when you, you, there could be some times where you do not get any returns. They are counting on what they, what we call average rates of return in the industry. And we've, we've delved into that also. And those average rates of return have not been what's anticipated. And thus, once again, if you borrow money from it or if you uh, just don't get the returns that they anticipated, they could come back and and they and that it has happened where they come back and they say we need more cash above and beyond what we told you we were going to have to have for the premium to keep this thing in force. Right, and so just as you're sharing specifically that element where you may not know going in that there may be cash required on top of what's illustrated in the policy in order to keep the policy in force, it's unfortunate to be relying on something that really isn't that steady, stable ground. Correct. And then finally, we have the the longest running type of insurance, and that's whole life insurance, and been around for several hundred years. And in some cases, you could even argue it's been around for um, close to a thousand years, depending on your definition of it. But basically, what it is, is taking the actuaries determine what the death benefit is going to be based upon how much money you would like to place into the policy. And then they spread, they spread the one year renewable term over a con a contract period, which in most cases nowadays is 121 years. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. There are some 100 years or some 90, 90, so on and so forth. But for our listeners to understand is what they've actually they they've actually done is spread out the cost of insurance over that time period, and so they know what that cost of insurance is going to be. And much like the one year annual renewable term, they know early in the process it's going to be a lot lower because you're younger, and later in the process as you as you get closer to the contract, whether it's 100 or 121 years, the cost of the insurance is going to be much greater. So then they spread it out over all those years. A good friend of ours who we've already had on the podcast, Dr. Robert Murphy, has done extensive study on this and um, explains this one-year renewable term concept spread out over the entire um, contract in a, in a couple of his books. And so what this allows people to have is certainty for one, because they know their premiums are not going to increase. Now, you, mm -hmm. you know your premiums are not going to increase in the term insurance also, but it is only for a particular term, and then they increase after that term. So you have uh, a 100% a certainty that as long as you do what you contractually said you were going to do, you don't have to worry about um, the premiums actually 
increasing. So Rachel, what really then to understand whole life insurance is that you're actually, you are purchasing a death benefit, but you're also overfunding the death benefit so that it is growing um, and you're building cash value. There are two types of whole life insurance companies. For the most part, there's a there's one that are stock companies and there are ones that are uh, mutual companies. Stock companies are owned by the stockholders and mutual companies are owned by the, the policy owners. And then they pay um, to the cash value differently by contract to, to build that cash value over the entire life of the policy. Yes. So just as you're kind of breaking down here, the the three major types of insurance, if we lump those into buckets, so we have term, whole, or term, universal, and whole life. And really for the purposes of privatized banking, to be able to have guarantees in what your cash value performance will be, we want to use whole life insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, you also mentioned the mutual versus stock companies. So we said at the beginning that we were going to tell you the only type of life insurance company you want to work with. We do not want to use stock companies because with a mutual company, they are paying back the proceeds of the company beyond the reserves that they need to keep to the owners who are the policyholders in the form of a dividend. And that is going to add to your bottom line in the policy and increase your cash value, almost like your equity inside the policy. So I don't know if Bruce, you want to say anything more at this point about mutual versus stock, or we can go ahead and move on to the no, next I think I, I think what people just have to understand is that uh, when a when a insurance company makes a profit, and don't get me wrong, that's what they're in business for is to make a profit. Um, mm-hmm. The the two types, the stock companies, and a lot of a lot of companies used to be mutual companies. Matter of fact, years ago they all were mutual companies. And then they started in the 80s when the stock market in the early 90s, they started to uh, take off. They thought, well, this is an opportunity for us because we're not doing as well in the insurance industry anymore. Remember early on, I said, in order for a business to be successful, they have to make tweaks along the way to try to stay up with the current market trends. Well, Mm -hmm. Well, they were losing premiums. And so they thought, well, we need an influx of cash to actually grow our companies. So a huge majority of companies, they they did what they call demutualize. So they went from a mutual company and they went to a stock company. So anybody that wanted to own stock in a particular company, uh, insurance company, could just buy the stock. They didn't have to be a policy owner. The ones that stayed with being a mutual company, and there's not a whole lot of them around anymore, but they're very strong companies. They've been around for a long time. They withstood the storm and they actually stayed. And now they actually pay any profits back to the policyholders. So just to give you an idea, and Coca-Cola, UPS, other stock companies that are not insurance companies, they do the same thing. Their board of directors gets together. They look at how they did that particular year and they declare a dividend per share for the stockholders, whether it's an insurance company Mm -hmm. or whether it's just a normal corporation 
like UPS or, or Coca-Cola. So that's not unusual. With a, with a mutual company, and by the way, I, I come from a farming community, and I often compare this to a, like a, a farmer's co-op, and there's other co-ops mm-hmm. around where farmers just pool their resources, and then, and then they sell uh, because they have buying power, or they only lease one major barn to store things in instead of a bunch of them. And then at the end, the co-op, if it has a, if it has a profit, they, they actually take that profit and divvy it up according to how many shares that these farmers bought into. It's very similar to an insurance company. So you have actually paid premium. You actually have a part of the company and it's based upon your, your death benefit how big your death benefit is because the premium is based upon your death benefit. And then at the end of the year, the board of directors for these mutual companies, they look at what did it cost to run the company that includes the buildings they are in the, the uh, service force that are in the main building to service the policies. And it, and it goes to pay the people that, that actually sell the, the products for the company in the forms of, of commissions then they look at what did they make on their premium portfolio. Uh, oh, I'm, I, I actually forgot the the most important one. They also look at how many people died and they had to pay out death benefits. So those are the mm-hmm. drags on the um, the actual performance, the cost of running the business. And then they look at well, what do we do with all that premium money that came in? Well, they they employ it. Most of it is employed in. Uh, high, highly rated bonds. Uh, so we're looking at treasuries. We're looking at really highly rated corporate bonds and municipal bonds. Then they, um, a lot of the companies will do uh, real estate projects with them. Um, and then finally, a very small sliver, and I'm talking a very small sliver, uh, less than 5% of their portfolio might be in some kind of securities related uh, product. Then they see how that that grew, how their portfolio grew compared to their expenses. Then they have an actual profit, and insurance companies are really good at controlling this. And, and when they have a profit, they take some of that profit and put it into the reserves of the company, and they take the rest of the profit and they declare a dividend rate to be paid back to the policy owners. And that dividend rate then becomes part of the cash value. And according to the contract, if you would like, you would take some of that cash value and turn it into more death benefit. So Bruce, I really like several of the elements that you just brought out. And one is we had been talking about how a universal company is focusing on growth on something that's not as guaranteed. And something I want to point out here is that whole life insurance companies, specifically mutual companies that we're talking about, have a very conservative strategy for growing their money. They're putting it to work in a very conservative strategy. And that's where a lot of the guarantees can come from because of that conservative nature of their Mm -hmm. investment structure. And the other thing I want to point out with a mutual company is that when you are a policy owner, you'll get paperwork at the end of every year and you get to vote on major things that they have going on with the company. Sometimes it's a change in leadership or a change in ownership of the company. And so I know for all of the years that we've owned 
um, permanent whole life insurance products, we've always been able to have that voting right Mm -hmm. with those mutual companies. And so I look forward to that paperwork at the end of the year to make sure that I know that I'm getting a say, almost like voting in our country. We have a say in the insurance company that we're a part of. So let's take this now then into, I mentioned kind of having this map, almost like virtual reality. And I've never seen it myself, but I've seen pictures where you're looking maybe out at the world around you and and on top of the the landscape, you'll see labels. Maybe you're driving and it's like a GPS that's telling you where to turn. And I want to help you develop that type of a map when you're looking at a life insurance policy to really recognize those crucial elements of a privatized banking policy so that you can quickly figure out, does this measure up and give me what I'm looking for? So I'm just going to pull out some of the pieces that we've actually already discussed throughout the very fascinating conversation and just the history that Bruce, you've been able to share. So one is that we have a premium that is guaranteed to have no increases. We have cash value. We have dividends. Now, while dividends are not guaranteed, Bruce just showed you all of the ways why they are highly anticipated to be paid into the policy every single year. And then you also want a contract that does not mech, does not turn into what's called a modified endowment contract. And that simply means life insurance has tax advantages. It grows tax advantage and you're able to utilize that money tax-free. And if we don't have the correct structure around that, it becomes like a 401k or like a qualified plan where you do have to pay tax when you use the money. So those are four elements. We want to have premium that is guaranteed, cash value growing, dividends, and a policy that does not mech. Bruce, do you want to kind of dig into any of those pieces to bring more to life? Yeah. So, and and a lot of times people, um, they don't look at it specially designed whole life and whole life Whole Life is a great product, and it's been a great product for hundreds of years. It's just kind of fallen out of favor because people have gotten enamored with uh, rates of return. Um, And so when they look at uh, premiums, they think, well, I got to pay these premiums for the rest of my life. And traditional Whole Life, that could be true Um, because what they're doing is they're spreading it out the entire time. And sometimes people can get overwhelmed, but you can actually design policies to overfund them early in as little as three years. And then just tell the company, okay, I've funded it three years. I want to reduce the death benefit so that, um, that whatever I put into it, um, I don't have to worry about anymore. Uh, there also, we'll, we'll delve into this a little bit later. There's going to be in most cases, with specialty design, there's going to be three different ways we're going to combine um, what they call the base policy, which is the most of the death benefit, with a term policy to satisfy the modified endowment contract, or what you are referred to as the MEC. And that's simply the IRS saying that in order to keep this tax advantage to where it grows tax-free, uh, you can only put so much money in a one-year period and a seven-year period. Uh, oh, um, for it to grow like that. And then finally, you can actually supercharge the cash value by purchasing little paid up policies or what they call level premium paid up additions, or some uh, contracts just call them paid up additions. Um, and frankly, some, com- some contracts, some everybody tries to 
uh, with their own company, come up with a little cute ways of calling things. So uh, some contracts might even call them something else, uh, but it, it all really means that you've just bought up a paid policy. So then what you're really looking at is to maximize the cash value in the early years um, so that you can, we can mimic a place to store our money like we would store it in a bank. Now, people, when I talk to people about this, they say, well, why, why wouldn't I just store it in a bank? And the reason mm-hmm. that we say that there's some advantages to storing in the bank and there's advantages to storing your money into pre- specially designed life insurance contracts is that you have to look at the pros and cons. There are some advantages of storing money in a bank. One, banks are... Um, easily accessible and within 15 minutes for most most people. So if, if you right. wanted to drive to the bank and you and I are proponents, you need to have money in the bank that you can get your hands on. Heck, you and I, oh, we, we both believe you should have money in your house that you can get your hands on. So we absolutely. are not saying that you shouldn't have money that you can easily control. We're all about control. So that's one of the advantages. The second um advantages in a lot of people's minds, although I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, in necessarily totally in this, is that it's safe. Now, we can argue what safe is, safe because it's um, backed by the FDIC. However, if you ever look into the reserves of the FDIC, you would, you would actually see that they don't, they don't have hardly any reserves. Now, yes, would the government, I think it's like 2%. It's, it's very, very low. low. Now, would the government w- come in and actually, you know, uh, for lack of a better explanation, actually print money, IOUs, um, to cover this? Probably. But all that would do is actually put more money into our monetary system and actually cause, cause inflation. inflation. So your money wouldn't right. be worth anything anywhere. So any as much anyway. Right. So then you say, well, is that really safe? Um it Absolutely. does. It, 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 you do get a rate of return. It's very, very low right now, although it is growing. I admit it is growing. But then when you, whatever you get, let's even say you get 1%, you have to put that 1% on your tax return and then it is taxable. So those are kind of the, the growth. The growth, yes, the the growth, growth is taxable. taxable. So those are mm-hmm. kind of the pros and cons of a bank. When you, oh, one major con too is, when you take, let's say you have $10,000 and you're making 1%, and then you take $5,000 out of it, now you're only making 1%, 1% on $5,000. So you right. lose that compounding effect. So now let's compare. And you're never able to earn on that same 5000 again because you use your exactly cash. That's right. For whatever reason you want to use it for. So now let's compare and contrast that to a whole life insurance contract that has been specially designed. So one, current guaranteed rates are, uh, most contracts are around 2%. So we're looking at current guaranteed rates at a lot of banks being well below 1% right now. So we're, we're talking about at least 100 times, 100% more, not 100 times, 100% more than a bank. That growth, when done properly, is not taxable. So that's mm-hmm. great. The the other thing is, is that if you have cash value at the life insurance company, you now have collateral 
And if you would like buy the contract, and this is very important that people understand this, buy the contract. All you have to do is sign a piece of paper and say, I want a loan equal to what I have available by cash value contract. In the, you don't have to um, apply for the loan. You just, you're satisfied that you're going to get your money right away. Now, here's part of the con. Most of the insurance companies will say it will take us five to seven business days to actually get your cash into your bank. Now, I've experienced where I've gotten my money when I've used it in 48 hours, but I always tell my, and I, and I have experience where I've gotten it in five days, but I always tell my clients, you know, you really have to prepare. That's going to be five to seven business days, which means it's not, it's, it's easily accessible, but it's not right there where you can drive and go get it. Now, yeah, I like to say that it's guaranteed access because you know that you'll be able to get to it. It's just not the 15 minute money. Right. It's you're not able to swipe your card and it's going to automatically charge. You're not able to drive one minute over to your bank branch and pull out the cash. So it requires a little bit more planning, but there is not there's no barrier to you getting it except that time Correct. frame. And although they do charge an interest rate, you do not necessarily and though we encourage everybody to do this, you do not actually have to pay the interest that is on your uh, policy. And people say, well, I don't understand that. Well, they're going to charge and it's going to, it's going to go into the ledger and you're going to have that go against your cash value every year, but you don't have to pay it because as long as you have the cash value in there, they, then they will actually subtract it. Now, the, the good part about it is, now, using our same example, if we ref- if we request a five thousand dollar loan from the insurance company because we have ten thousand dollars of collateral, they send us the five thousand dollars. They charge us an interest rate, but all ten thousand dollars that we still have made a premium payment into the policy remains there to to receive interest and dividends on that particular $10,000. So uh, co- companies do not recognize the loan. Yeah. So that's because you didn't take your money out. And that's a key distinction. You did not take your cash value out and use your cash value. You borrowed against your cash value. You used your cash value as collateral and took a loan from the life insurance policy, which is what allows your money to keep growing. And that allows you to earn that uninterrupted compound interest we talked about earlier. Yeah, Rachel, and that's a good point because a lot of people who do do not think this is a good idea, they say, "Well, why would you want to pay interest on your own money?" Well, you're not you're not right. paying you're, you're not, not paying interest on your own money. You're paying interest on the life insurance reserve money, and by contract, mm-hmm. they must make you a loan. Well, the some people might see that interest payment as a con, but what you're getting for that is you're getting uninterrupted compound growth on your money that the insurance company is, is uh, paying for. So um, those are the, those are the uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of it. We're going to get into more specifics of design, I think in a, in a later program, but what I would like to um, say about this entire thing, it's really about how you think everybody has banking in their lives. Banks are profitable. How do we know banks are profitable? 
They've been around for as long as the banking function's been around. And and I don't know about where, where our listeners live, but they pop up on every street corner, it seems like, here in St. Louis. Well, the only reason they pop up like that is because they're profitable. So if you can recapture the banking function in your life, you can recapture some of that profitability into your life, all at the same time getting protection for your income. Absolutely. And Bruce, you said it really well. I think we've covered a really wide swath about how to figure out what type of policy do I need if I'm going to use privatized banking. And so we're going to come back in another episode to really dig into those exact funding funding ratios that you need, the high performance custom modifications, and really be able to look at um, some of the reasons why you might need to look at not a one size fits all. This is not a one way is the only way that works for every person. Sometimes there's changes needed based on underwriting or your health status, or your age. And so we're going to talk about those in our next show, just because we want to be able to give you this in bite-sized chunks and not be too overwhelming all at once. So at this point, we want to leave you with this information today. I hope that you've been empowered with this information and, and now you have a choice. Knowing what you do know now about privatized banking and what type of life insurance policies can be used for it, you can use these guidelines to go down what we'd consider the straight and narrow and really have a policy that's designed to be used or you can take those shortcuts and get a run-of-the-mill policy that's going to end up costing you more in the long run. Now, I do want to point out, if you are right now shopping for a privatized banking policy for the very first time, or maybe you already have some in force and you're looking to add on another policy, which is something that we often do with our clients and with ourselves, you now have this framework to go from overwhelmed to really being, being able to be crystal clear on what you want. And you're able to make those decisions quickly and easily knowing what to focus on so you know what's most important. Now, if you're in a position where you already have a policy in place, and maybe it's not something that seems like it's measuring up to what we've said is what you want to have, that's not a reason to tuck and run for cover and dump the policy and start from scratch. We really would want to talk to you on a case-by-case basis to help you figure out the best strategy for you because you may not be doing yourself a service to end a policy and start a brand new one. There might be ways to have a specific strategy that works for you in your particular case that's going to do the best thing for you. So if you would like more information on specially designed life insurance contracts, you can get our free 15-minute crash course at themoneyadvantage.com slash liquid dash capital. We'll have that link in the show notes. And then you can also email us with your questions as we're going to be continuing on through this series on the mechanics of specially designed life insurance and privatized banking. And if you have questions about how to use it or questions about policies or questions about how the policies work um, or questions about loans, we would love to be able to answer those for you. And we have our own ideas of what we want to present. But if you have specific questions on your mind, we would very much love to hear those from you. The other thing I'd encourage you to do is to start before you're ready and you can lock in your ability to start this strategy later with the right convertible term life insurance policy today. So even if you might not be in a position to fund a whole life policy right now, you can get started anyways. But if you are already saving each month and you want to use a better tool than you're already using, maybe you realize that you're saving, but you're using the typical bank right now and you want to have something that's supercharged and really be able to use this concept, 
you want to get that higher tax exempt growth, you want greater accessibility, you you want to be able to have uninterrupted compound growth, let us help you determine how to implement this strategy in your own life so that you can improve every area of your financial life with this one move. So you can contact us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. There's also going to be a link to connect over to our contact page to get a financial picture conversation and be able to move forward from there. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Bruce, for sharing just so much of your tremendous knowledge and wisdom of the insurance industry as you've done tremendous work with your clients over several years. And again, remember, in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.